You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to God's Word, to um, Romans. Romans chapter 1. It is the first time I've ever... I'm going to begin... uh, preaching through the book of Romans, and it's the first time I've done this, and I've greatly enjoyed uh, preparing for it, and I hope that you get as much benefit from it as I have done. Just a couple other things. First of all, uh, thanks to those of you who helped with the church cleaning. It's great. Church is nice and clean. As my mother used to say to me, I've cleaned your bedroom. Keep it that way. So, that's for all of you. And uh, just remind you of that we've got a, a new arrangement. Um, we've got so many children and babies and so on. Uh, the spy group now meets in the office, and that means that the library is free for uh, parents with babies who don't want to go to the creche but can't stay in because they're so noisy and want to hear the sermon. We've got a speaker through there, so that is now the kind of permanent arrangement for that. Anyway, Romans chapter 1 <clears throat> Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, sorry, this is on page 1128, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, by the way, is one sentence in the original language. Um, So there's a lot to unpack. Now, I want to say that if you happen to come in here and it's your first time here and you don't really know what the Christian gospel is, In worldly terms, you're lucky. In Christian terms, you're providentially blessed because uh, what we're looking at is precisely what the gospel is. And this book, uh, Romans, is, I think some Christians have put off it because people like me treat it like a theological treatise, which it's not. This is one of the most important letters, documents ever written. We have around 14,000 letters from the ancient world. I think this is probably the most important. It's 7,100 words long. And as John Stott says, it's the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the, Old, in the New Testament. It's had a profound influence. And um, people like Augustine and Calvin and Luther and Wesley. Uh, This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and uh, I really enjoy reading Martin Luther's uh, commentary on Romans, because it's typical Luther. He's kind of, how will I put it, curse (laughs) sometimes, but he's he's, he's pithy, and he's he's got so much wisdom and and stuff in there as well. It's just great. Um, Luther, of course, loved Romans because He was a professor of the Bible at Wittenberg University, and when he was there in the year 1515 to 1516, he expounded Romans, 
and he was angry with God. You can be a professor of the Bible and not be a Christian. He saw God as a terrifying judge rather than a merciful Savior. And it was through teaching Romans that he himself came to faith, which is just a wonderful thing. There's a, a, another story very similar. We've got some Romanians with us this evening, and I do hope you'll be there. There's a Romanian <coughs> professor called uh, Dimitu Cornelisku. I'm sure, I'm glad I'm not pronouncing that this evening because I'm sure I pronounced it wrong. But he was Romanian Orthodox, and he began to translate the Bible in 1916 into modern Romanian. And it was as he was translating Romans that he was converted. Karl Barth was a liberal theologian. Uh, he improved considerably. He still didn't quite get there, but um, he, he, uh, he himself as a liberal theologian was converted in 1918 through reading Romans. It's my hope and prayer that what happened to John Wesley would happen to you as you listen to Romans because he was in London in Aldersgate Street and he went into a meeting and someone was reading Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans and Wesley says, I felt as though my heart was strangely warmed. And he was converted through even reading about Romans. And then I think possibly my favorite story of all is Augustine. I'm paraphrasing a little bit from his confession. St. Augustine, of course, African, uh, Carthage, and he, uh, he, he writes about this, that he was in the garden, and he was struggling with who God is and his sin and so on, and he says this, I was speaking and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart, when lo, I heard from a neighboring house a voice, as of a boy or girl, I know not, chanting and oft repeating, take up and read, take up and read. And for those of you who are Latin freaks, tole lege, tole lege. Instantly, my countenance altered. I began to think most intently whether children were wont in any kind of play to sing such words. In other words, what child goes around saying, take and read, take and read, you don't really hear that as a chant. Nor could I ever remember having heard the like. So checking the torrent of my tears, I arose, interpreting this to be no other than a command from God to open the book. And I read the first chapter I should find, which was Romans chapter 15. After he read it, he says, No further would I read, nor needed I, for instantly at the end of this sentence, by a light as it were, uh, serenity infused into my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And maybe these are all kind of great names in the church. Let me give you one that you've never heard of. A lady called Barbara in Broda. When I first went there, she came to church, and I was preaching a sermon, and unbelievably, she forgot what I said. You know, she didn't remember all of it instantly. And as she was going out, she thought, that was really good, but I can't remember it. But she said, I, there was a verse there that was really helpful to me. I know it was in Romans, but I don't know where. So what she did was she went home, and she read the whole of Romans in the next week. Came back on Sunday, and she said, I've become a Christian because she read Romans. So there's an incentive for you to read Romans. It's got a great theme. Its theme is that um, God gave His Son that we might know Him, that we might be forgiven, that we might be restored. It is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. 
I want to say, for, for those of you who are not Christians, of course, this is incredibly vital, incredibly important. But for those of us who are, it's just as important. John Owen says, I'm paraphrasing him a wee bit, um, it's because he's quite dense. Um, not, I don't mean dense as in stupid, but dense as in the opposite. Uh, it's very, makes Paul look light. Um, when the soul of a believer is able to take a view of the glory of the wisdom of God, examining this great mystery of our salvation, it deals with all our fears, removes all our objections, and is a means of bringing assured peace into the mind. Without an understanding of the gospel, we will never get that. Now, you understand this then. You understand the gospel, every question you have, every doubt you have, every fear you have is set into its proper perspective. And it's not that you feel no pain, it's not that you have no doubt, it's not that you have no discouragement. It's that the light of the gospel overwhelms that all. And if you are a Christian, you need to hear the gospel as much as if you are not a Christian. So, how do we um, introduce all of this? Well, remember this is a letter written in specific historical circumstances. And I want to just look at this in a couple of ways from these first verses. It's telling us about a city and a church that needs the gospel. That's us. Now, Rome at this time was a city of about one million people. And in fact, extraordinarily so. It, you Probably only until the 19th century, and possibly even then, only in China, would you get a city that was this big and this important. But it was the center of the largest empire the world had ever known. We know when this letter was written, almost <coughs> to the month. It was written in the year AD 57, when Paul was a house guest of a man called Gaius in <coughs> Corinth in Greece. Um, probably the letter was written and then brought to Rome, because there's no royal mail, by Phoebe, who is described as a deaconess of the church at Sencria. Paul would have been almost certainly uh, my age, early 20s, and um, early 50s, sorry. Uh, he'd been a Christian and an apostle for 25 years. And it's interesting with Paul, by the way. He had this, this was his way of doing things. He went to major pagan centers, to Antioch, to Philippi, to Thessalonica, to Athens, to Corinth, to Ephesus, and he wanted to go to Rome. But when he writes Romans, as, as we go through it, you'll see this towards the end, he's kind of saying, I've had enough of the Middle East, and you know, I've planted churches, and he's basically saying, I've got too many Christians around me, I want to go where there are no Christians. And he doesn't even want to go to Rome. Because the church in Rome's already been planted, as we'll see. He says, I want to go to Spain. But he can't, he, he's not able to go to Rome at that point, so he writes them a letter because of um, particular difficulties that were occurring. Now, the difficulties, it's important to know these. In the year AD 49, six years previously, the Emperor Claudius threw out all the Jews from Rome. There was about 40 to 50,000 Jews in Rome. And it meant that Paul couldn't go to Rome. He wasn't allowed. The Jews were banned. Somebody else laid the foundation. 
But by the time Paul writes this letter, the Jews were allowed back, uh, Nero was in power, and he says, I'm, I'm sending you the letter, church has now been planted, so I'm going to come and visit you on my way to Spain, but I want to send you this letter. Well, what about the church? Acts 2 verse 10 tells us that there were Jews from Rome at Pentecost who became Christians, and they would go back to Rome. There was this large Jewish community, and by the year AD 49, so within 15 years, the gospel had grown so much it was causing a great deal of trouble. There is a a historian, Suetonius, a Roman historian, who records that there were riots in in Rome amongst the Jewish people because of Christus, which is Christ. So, it looks as though the claims that Jesus was the Messiah caused a great deal of trouble in the Jewish community, and uh, the emperor said, the emperor Claudius said, I've had enough, go, you're all expelled. And they were all driven out, including, by the way, those of you who know your Bibles, Aquila and Priscilla, who were tent makers who'd become Christians. So, only a few Gentile believers were left. But as always happens in the gospel, this happened in China. When Mao Zedong threw out all the European missionaries, people thought, that's it. You know, the church is going to decline. But when we were allowed back, the Chinese church had grown phenomenally without us because the Lord doesn't need us. And the Lord didn't need these Jewish Christians to spread the gospel in Rome because they were already Gentile Christians and the Holy Spirit was at work. And when they returned, the church had grown. But that meant there was tension. So there's tension between the Jewish Christians and tension between the Gentile Christians. And you need to read Rome in that context because Paul is addressing that issue. Incidentally, I I hadn't thought about this, but I thought it was a a very interesting suggestion. In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter says, she who is at Babylon sends greetings. Babylon was a term that was used for Rome. And the suggestion, the hint is from that, that Peter had actually gone to Rome. Not that he founded the church there, but he went there and preached. And when Paul talks about building on another person's foundation, and he doesn't want to do that, I suspect he probably is saying, look, I'm not wanting to add to what uh, Peter has already done. So, that's the, the basic context. It's, um, it's interesting as well. He says, to all in Rome, beloved by God. You see that in verse 7 are loved by God. He doesn't say the church. That probably means that there wasn't one church. It probably means that still at that point that they would meet in various houses uh, because of persecution and other things. And it certainly means that there was a real need for unity. How did Paul know about this? Well, Priscilla and Aquila had returned to Rome by this point and they probably kept him in touch. So, what he says to them is, you Christians need to be united. What brings unity? The gospel. The church needs to grow. What brings growth? The gospel. And that is as true here in Dundee as it was in Rome, as it is in any city in this world. So, that's the introduction. Uh, I'll not do the introduction every single time, Um, And as we go through it, we'll learn more about 
the church in Rome and more about Paul and more about what God was doing. But it is important to understand the context because if you don't understand the context, very often we misunderstand what's actually being said. So I want to um, just this first sentence, we're not, we, won't, we won't do the whole lot, we'll do the, uh, the second part of it next week. But I wanted to consider about um, Paul himself, the apostle of the gospel. And again, not a, a, a great history, but it's, it's important to know who wrote this. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting is it's Paul alone. Every single one of his letters is Paul plus somebody else. But here it's Paul on his own. Again, you might be uh, new to the Christian faith, not know much about it. That's fine. You, you don't, you're not expected to know all these things. But it is important to know that Paul was a Jewish teacher who at first of all rejected Christ, hated Christ, and persecuted Christians as Jewish heretics. But he was spectacularly and marvelously converted through the death of the martyr Stephen, through an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and through hearing uh, the gospel after that. He describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. And there are two words that are used in the Bible in, or in the New Testament in Greek for servant. One means a servant that you can walk away, a, a deacon, really. That's how the word is used. But here, it's the word for a slave. And what he's saying is, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I belong to Jesus Christ. And that's his first description. His second is as an apostle. The apostles were the twelve who'd witnessed the risen Christ and been commissioned by Christ. To them were added James and eventually Paul, who also saw the risen Christ. The word apostle is also used, and it will be used later in this letter, of an evangelist or missionary or of envoys or messengers representing a church or churches. But here, it's used in the sense of the twelve. And what is important here, Paul says he was called to be an apostle. He didn't go to a careers fair and say, okay, I fancy that job. Um, I find it quite interesting, by the way, when I see churches trying to encourage people to go into the ministry, and they advertise it as some kind of job that, that um, you know, it's do you want to be involved in the community? Some kind of glorified social worker. And nothing, not that there's anything wrong with social workers, especially glorified ones, but um, it, it, it's this idea that being in the ministry is a, a, a career. Now, there's two things to say about that. One is, you have to have a definite calling to proclaim God's Word. It's not for everybody to do that, not in this sense. The other thing I would say is this, all of us, no matter who we are as Christians, should realize that what we are doing is what God has called us to. And if it's not, we need to think about it. You can serve the Lord being called to wash dishes as much as you can serve the Lord being called to preach. But Paul had this definite sense of being called. Galatians 1.15, when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Isn't this, this is really interesting. 
Paul was not a Christian probably until his 30s. And yet he says, I was set apart from the womb. Everything leading up to that point, including his persecution of Christians, including his Pharisaism, all of these things, they, they were being, they were preparation for this great ministry that he was to have. And he was so conscious of this. He was conscious of his sin. He was conscious of what he'd done that was wrong. But he recognized that the hand of God was on him, even from my mother's womb. So Paul is the author. He's a servant of the gospel. He's an apostle. He's set apart for the gospel of God. And Paul says, that's enough. That's all you need to hear about me. You don't need to hear about me. You need to hear about this gospel. And so he then goes on to tell us about it. It's an absolute, it's the absolute key word. If you go to the end of Romans, in Romans chapter 16, he finishes off by saying, now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Take those verses and the verses at the beginning and you've got the sandwich, which Paul says, this is all about the gospel. This is all about the glory of God. This is all about the beauty of Jesus Christ. He uses the word gospel, I think, about 65 times (coughs) in total. What do we mean by that? What does he mean by it? Well, it's good news about God. That's verse 1. Set apart for the gospel of God. The good news of God. We need to remember that when we're telling people the gospel. The gospel is not about you and the gospel is not about me. The gospel is about God. I've had people, sometimes they contact you and they say, such and such a Christian did this, and that makes me question the gospel. And I, want, and I, I understand people's pain and questioning, except for this. The gospel is not about anyone except God and what God has done. It's about God's character and God's saving acts. You say, I don't know who God is. How do I know? That, that's the point of this book. That's the point of this letter of Romans. This is a message with specific content. It's a message from God. That again is why the church gets in so much trouble. Because anytime the church moves away from the good news as given to us by God, about God, we just make up our own. And we lead people away from God rather than to Him. The second thing he says about this gospel is that it's promised, verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Somebody says, I'm a New Testament Christian, and I don't read the Old Testament, to which my immediate response is, well, you're not a New Testament Christian then, because a New Testament Christian realizes that the gospel is promised in the Old Testament. Um, I don't know who it was. It might even have been Will. We were just through praying beforehand, and 
uh, we've got an order of service, and it's under mission, it says Old Testament reading. It was Will, because you said, uh, oh, I like the fact that Old Testament reading comes under mission. Exactly. That's what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is about God's mission. It is about Jesus. Someone's described it this way. It's like an Agatha Christie mystery with the last chapter missing. And the gospel, if you like, it's included, the Old Testament, the gospel includes the Old Testament. But what Paul is giving us here is the last chapter. There's something else that's really important for us to understand. You don't read the Bible and go, Genesis, Exodus, so on, then you read through all these things, you say, ah, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work, and then finally, God sent Jesus because everything else didn't work. No, no. The whole point, from the very beginning to the very end, it's been about Jesus and preparing for Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying to both the Jewish Christians and to the Gentile Christians in Rome. All the promises are yes in Christ. Luther, again, here the door is thrown open wide for the understanding of the Holy Scripture. That is, that everything must be understood in relation to Christ. You will not understand the Bible unless you read it Christologically. Sorry for the big long word, but you read it with the seeing Christ. The most convincing and persuasive proof of the gospel is the fact that it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. And throughout this book, Paul will keep referencing Scripture because Scripture confirms Scripture. So it was promised. It was not an afterthought. This is what God had intended all along. This was the great mystery, hidden for ages, but now revealed and made known. Okay, so we've got it's good news about God. We've got it was promised in the Old Testament. And thirdly, what's it about? Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul uses the term Christ dozens of times. I think it's nearly 70 times in Romans. Jesus was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Some people think this is a creedal statement, something that people repeated, like the Apostles' Creed. Maybe it was, maybe it was, we don't know. But one thing to understand is, this is not saying that Jesus became the Son of God only at the resurrection. What it's saying is, well, it talks about his human nature, as to his human nature was a descendant of David. Why does he say that? Again, partly the Jewish connection, but mainly to say there's something more. There's a human nature, but there's something more. And it's saying that the, what the resurrection did, before the resurrection, Jesus was the Son of God. He was a human being, but in weakness. He limited himself, but he was declared with power. Afterwards, the resurrection is showing us that Jesus is God. And that was the... the the beginning message for most New Testament evangelism. Jesus died. He rose from the dead. What does this prove? That He was the Son of God. And again, we need to remember that the gospel is not a, uh, 
some nice words about how to, how to live. It's not some bright philosophical ideas. The gospel is about living in the resurrection power. It's saying this, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is available to you and will also raise you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It was raised through the spirit of holiness, which is the Hebrew way of saying the Holy Spirit. And that's why all this is so important. It matters that Jesus really existed. It mattered that he really died and that he really rose from the dead and that he was not just a nice guy or a superhero. He was and is the Son of God. Since I've quoted Luther, I better go back to Calvin. Calvin just simply says, the the gospel is contained in Christ. The whole gospel is contained in Christ. And if we move away from the gospel, we are moving away from Christ. I think one of the reasons that the church, including the evangelical church in the West today, is so weak is we keep making the gospel about ourselves. And it isn't. It's about Him. And then, just finally, it has to be told. That's what he says. Through Him and for His name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Now, I'll tell you what is wonderful about this. Paul was a fanatical Jewish nationalist who preached circumcision in order to keep the Gentiles out. His whole mission was to keep people out. And he changes from that to becoming somebody who is the apostle to the Gentiles, inviting them in. I don't know, it's a bit like, I mean, I heard an, an astonishing interview with Ian Paisley Jr., um, where he talked about how Ian Paisley Sr. and Martin McGuinness used to meet together for prayer. That just blew my mind. Extraordinary. And people say, oh, that's terrible, he was a terrorist, and so on. Well, who knows? Maybe they changed. Who knows? I mean, if you, if you can't believe that that's possible. I was uh, told by a friend who works in a European mission agency that one of the most moving conferences he was ever at was one where a uh, Croatian nationalist and a Serbian nationalist who both became Christians sat together and prayed together and took communion together. It's wonderful. The dividing wall of partition is broken down. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, saying, this is the gospel. it's, It's to be told to everybody and it's to be told to the Gentiles. And he's really writing, I think, big hint to the Jews there who are thinking, how do we keep our Jewishness and how do we keep it all pure? And Paul's saying, forget that. Forget that. This gospel has to go everywhere in this city. He says he received grace to do this. He uses that word 24 times in Romans, the highest it's used in any New Testament book. It's a huge theme in the whole book. And the word grace, you know my favorite thing about the word grace? is that it's always linked with the word joy. It comes from the word joy. And I loved, uh, I was listening to Sinclair uh, preaching over in in Ligonier uh, this week, and just one phrase that stuck out, he said, in Protestant circles, he said, in medieval Catholic circles, one of the reasons the Reformation was needed was the Catholic Church had turned grace into a thing that you could purchase. And second, we're saying in Protestant circles today, we're in danger of also having it as a thing. Grace is not a thing. 
It's not a thing. Grace comes through Christ. It's the mercy of Jesus Christ. It's the renewal of Jesus Christ, and it is the joy of Jesus Christ. Grace is that which causes joy. And Paul says, we have to go and tell this good news of God's grace to people, because we live in a world that's full of miserable people, and who get their joy from artificial things that ultimately do not satisfy. They get their joy in the same way that a thirsty person quenches their thirst by drinking salt water. It never works, but we have this great joy. And he uses an interesting expression. He says, we've got to tell it to the Gentiles, to the obedience that comes from faith. Well, what's that? Obedience, it's the first time that we've come, we come across this particular Greek word in any ancient literature. There were words for obedience, but not this one. Some people think it's just Paul again. He made, he made up words. He couldn't think of something, so he just made it up. Maybe. But he ties it in with faith, which is trusting God. Now, this is very, very important to grasp. The gospel is not what many churches teach it, including ones which say that they're liberal and open and generous, where they say, now, if you do this, and if you do that, and if you're not racist, and if you are kind, and da 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 da, da then you'll get to know God, and so on. Paul completely reverses that, and what he says was, if you know Jesus, if you know God, if you have faith in Him, then you will obey. You believe, and because you believe and trust in Jesus, you obey Him. And that's why if you've got the impression, right, I want to be a Christian, but I've got to do this, 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 and this, and then I can get in, almost like passing an exam. No. The gospel is simply this. It is good news about Jesus, and when you believe it, and when you trust in Jesus, when you feel your heart strangely warmed, when you read it, and Augustine, the lights fall, the, the darks, the shutters fall from your eyes, whether it's gradually or instantaneously, once you grasp who Jesus is, you then say, I want to obey Him because He is Lord, because of what He did for me, not so that I can earn my salvation. And look what Paul says. He says, we, through Him and for His name's sake, we receive this apostleship to tell the gospel. How is Jesus glorified? I'll tell you how Jesus is glorified. Jesus is glorified precisely because of what Chris said. I didn't know that there were people in this world like this. Well, it's not because they're good people. It's because Jesus has saved them and Jesus has worked in their life. And I'll tell you this. If we are not a people who, because of our love for Christ, desire to serve and to help, I'm telling you, I don't think we love Christ. How can we love Christ? How can we say we love God if we, don't, we, can, we haven't seen, if we don't love our brother or sister whom we have seen? It's the love of Christ that compels us to do these things. Not we're trying to get brownie points or show off to people around us. We do it because we love Jesus. We don't do it for reward. We don't do it for glory. We don't do it for, you know, self-publicity or to make ourselves feel good. We do it because of the love of Christ. And that's what Paul says here. It is, it is the, it is the, for His name's sake. 
I want Christ to be glorified in this city. How will he be glorified? By many more people coming to know him as Lord and Savior. Because they will see, they will know. And I hope and pray that you grasp and get hold of that. John Stott says, I think it's a great summary. The good news, summarizing these verses, the good news is the gospel of God about Christ according to Scripture for the nations unto the obedience of faith and for the sake of the name. Augustine heard a child's voice. He believed it was God speaking to him, and I'm sure it was, saying, take it and read. Take it and read. The great philosopher Augustine, God, I, just, I think this is really quite funny, actually. God ha- had him hear a child's voice, not a lion, not a roaring, not a deep man's voice, but a child voice, as, as if it were playing, says Augustine. Take and read, take and read. And logical Augustine said, children, don't do that. Children, don't play like that. This has got to be God. And he read it, and he was crying, crying, because he was so conscious of his own sin. And, and as he read Romans 15, he realized who Jesus was and what he had done. Please take this book and read it. Do so prayerfully and act upon it, knowing that it is God speaking to you. And I say it just very, very simply. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.